Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Marshall, and this is For All Mankind, the official podcast. Today, I want to start off with a scene from one of our episodes this season between my character, Danielle Poole, and Ed Baldwin, outgoing chief of the astronaut office. I've given it a lot of thought. I want to be the first African-American woman to command a mission. First woman black commander is now a thing? Seriously, we're going to parse it that fine? You're damn right we are, Ed. If you don't give me a command spot, I will always be seen as that weak little black girl who fell apart on the moon. But if I were a white man, they'd have forgiven me a long time ago. Before playing Danielle Poole, I never really thought about space. Because growing up, I was never really exposed to anything about it. People always have these sort of tropes that they tell their children, like, you can be anything you want to be. But in reality, it's really hard to want to be what you don't see. NASA and outer space felt like this thing that just wasn't for me because I never saw any astronauts who looked like me. Like most kids, I learned about the first black woman to go into space during Black History Month, when all the facts and stats and achievements of black people can at times just sound like this big jumble of things that happened to one group of people a long time ago. You're just learning all these things at once is like this collective black history of the past. And it wasn't until I started working on this show that I realized that this is all very current. It was only the 1980s when someone other than a white man went into space. Only three black women have ever launched into orbit, and there has still not been an openly gay astronaut aboard a shuttle. We are still making history, and yet we have a really long way to go. So, today, I'll be sharing my conversations with four pioneers of space travel, each who have faced their own hurdles in joining a group that was overwhelmingly white and male. I sat down with Joan Higginbotham, the third and most recent black woman to go into space, and then with Dr. Leroy Chow, the first Asian-American astronaut to command the ISS. And I also spoke with former astronaut Nicole Stott about getting more women involved in the space program. But first, we'll hear from a larger-than-life aviator who proved that women are capable of spaceflight over 20 years before it became a reality. So first things first, hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me. Should I call you Captain Funk? Should I call you Wally? What would you prefer? Just Wally. You bet. Okay, perfect. Okay, let's get started. Three, two, one. In 1961, Wally Funk was the youngest member of a program called Lovelace's Woman in Space Program. Kind of a clunky name, but their hearts were in the right place. This was the first program designed to train female astronauts. While it was going on, Wally was only 21 years old. But even now, at 82, you can see why she would make a fearless astronaut. In Africa, I rode alligators, giraffes. Any animal that was there, I rode. And they said, Wally, aren't you afraid? I said, no. They said, are you going to get on that alligator? I said, sure. What they told me is you put your hands around the alligator's eyes and you get on and it'll move. <laughs> it was easy. I mean, if you can ride an alligator, you're probably pretty calm under pressure. Uh, Wally, talk to me about how you became a part of the first group of women tested to be astronauts, the Mercury 13. 
Okay, well, before I can talk about the Mercury 13, you're going to have to know how I got there with all those tests at Loveless Clinic. The phase one that Dr. Loveless gave me was the Mercury tests, and it was a week's worth of tests. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, they took my blood 16 times a day. They ran tubes down me. They ran tubes up me. They checked every kind of thing that I had in my body. And these tests were the same as those given to the first male astronaut candidates. Um, I heard that you actually performed better than some of the guys. What was one of those tests where that happened? They put us in a round chair that would go round and round and round and round. And I said, give me five G's. Now the guys all got sick at two and three G's. I didn't. So that's just one of the millions of tests that I went through. Mm -hmm. Now, they put me in a big tub of water. Mm. So that was the sensory deprivation tank, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So I had to get myself very organized and get my body to where it would float absolutely without doing anything. Mm -hmm. They wanted my arms and my legs out. And so the lights came down. I closed my eyes, and I was very, very quiet. Mm. And about three or four hours later, somebody came on the mic and said, Hey, Wally, do you need to go to the bathroom? I said, I've already done that. (laughs) (laughs) So then they said, Well, you're doing okay? I said, I'm doing perfect. And then about another four or five hours later, they said, Well, we're going to turn the lights on. And we want you to be very cautious about getting over to the side of the pool, Mm -hmm. getting your Mm -hmm. towel on, Mm -hmm. and come on out to the room where we're going to investigate you. Mm -hmm. And they said, Wally, we want to tell you, you've stayed in longer than anybody. You stayed in 10 hours and 35 minutes. Wow. Wally had excelled across the board with these tests. But in the end, it didn't matter. In 1961, Kennedy said we would put a man on the moon, and support dried up for anything that didn't get us there faster. The program was shuttered. More than two decades later, Sally Ride became the first American woman to fly to space. And then, in 1995, Eileen Collins became the first woman to pilot the space shuttle. Today, Wally Funk is still an active pilot here on Earth, more specifically, in Texas. She's logged almost 20,000 hours and has taught over 400 people how to fly. I will take people up flying. If you were here, I would take you up flying and show you how neat it is. I would love that. You would hear the air, you would smell it, and it's just, it's great. At 82, Wally still holds out hope for a trip to space. I just want the experience of going up into space and seeing Earth as it is. Women like Wally Funk pushed the envelope early on, but plenty of barriers remained. My next guest, Joan Higginbotham, is one of only a handful of Black women to ever fly to space. My name is Joan Higginbotham. I am a retired NASA astronaut. I am the third of only three African-American women to go into space, proudly, but I, I say we need to add to that club. In December of 2006, Joan Higginbotham became the third Black woman to fly to space and also the last. No black women have flown to space since Joan, which led me to ask her one question. What the f*** is that about? 
First of all, just generally speaking, there is just a big attrition rate when it comes to women going into the STEM fields. I mean, that's been the probably a problem since I was a little girl. And then when you look at women of color, that number is even lower. And then of those who do come out into the STEM fields, how many of those really think, hey, I think I'm going to go be an astronaut? I know that certainly wasn't my career path. Um, I always thought it was for military men only. Did you always have a love for space when you were a little girl? No. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, uh, you know, my brother could tell you, oh, you know, they wheeled the black and white TV in when, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for them to watch the, all the moon stuff. I, that's probably out skipping rope or something. I don't remember <laughs> it at all. I have no memory and it made no impression on me at the time. I mean, it's a big fat question to ask, but how do we get black girls like me who grew up in the 90s interested in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, because that's the doorway in. I wouldn't have gone the engineering route had I not been exposed to a program called En-ROADS, which Mm. at that time was a pre-engineering program for women and people of color. So you go to school for five days during the summer for about eight weeks, and then during the school year, you go to school on Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> what what kid in the commitment, right mind? Commitment, kids. Yeah. Commitment. <laughs> what, what kid in the right mind would go, ooh, I want to do that? I would. Yeah. I was like, ooh, yeah, that sounds really great. <laughs> and so, you know, I got a leg up on the coursework. So everybody mm-hmm. in the program was African-American, and there were probably as many women in the program as there were men. It was not an affirmative action program. Mm-hmm. It was a program which took students who had talent expose them to things that they would not otherwise have or may not otherwise have been exposed to so that they wouldn't know what to do when they got to high school and to college. I mean, I I love math and science, but no one of my parents' friends, none of those guys were engineers. I I didn't know Mm -hmm. who an engineer was. But through that exposure, I learned to say, oh, I can take my love of math and science and my natural curiosity, and I can mm-hmm. parlay that into a career of engineering, and I can make a living at that. So to me, it's all about exposure. You can't be what you can't see. So once you became an engineer and got accepted into the astronaut training program, what did your class look like? So in the class that I started, my Ask Can class, there were mm-hmm. actually three African-American women. Mm-hmm. It was myself, it was Stephanie Wilson, and Yvonne Cagle. So we mm-hmm. all came together and started training together with the other guy for math, 41 people <laughs> in our Ask Can class because we had 44 people. There were 35 Americans and nine internationals. So you and Stephanie, she went to space as well. So the two of you become good girlfriends and you are now training in this group. Was there any part of you that felt... um we are the three black girls here. All eyes are on us. Because <laughs> you know I know what that's like. <laughs> uh, oh, gosh, yes. There, y- yes. Um, yes, we we were definitely, eyes were on us, shall we mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting because they would always confuse Stephanie and I because we're about the same That's always fun height. when that happens, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that always fun? <laughs> so I remember I'm in the elevator one day with I won't say who, and he's like, hey, congratulations on so-and-so. And I'm like, well, thank you. I have no <laughs> clue what he's talking about. And I see Steph. I, lay, I said, you know, so-and-so congratulated 
She goes, that was me. I was like, okay, that explains it. I get it now. (laughs) So, yeah. Mm -hmm. As far as being a woman and being a Black woman, and maybe you can relate to this, you just do. And you Mm -hmm. adjust and you make it happen. Mm -hmm. And all the the little slights and other little things, you get past it. You address the ones that need to be addressed and you put those people rightfully in their place in a very polite Mm -hmm. way, Mm -hmm. but just to let them know that, um, you know, this is not acceptable, but you do what you have to do, basically. You know, like there is, for me at least, the assumption that everybody who does this is just so far out bounds smarter than everybody else. And so I think just demystifying that that process, demystifying the world around it and making it much more tangible. I mean, obviously not every nincompoop can go and do it, but I think a lot of women probably underestimate their abilities and just assume that it's a thing for other people that is not for us. Absolutely. So we think back on little Joni and she had this program thank God, that was created for kids in in Chicago and brought you into a world where it germinated or helped to invigorate your already present interest in engineering and in technology. What can we do today so that we can create more Little Jones? It is, I think, getting kids that exposure and getting their hands on. Once you put your hands on stuff, I just think that is so cool. And I think that gets the interest level of kids up. Mm -hmm. So get that exposure. Let them go to the Rocketry Club. Let them see all the different things that they can do and take the mystique out of Mm -hmm. this really difficult math and science stuff. And we just need to get them interested early before, you know, the girls get to seventh grade and they're like, well, the boys aren't going to like me if I'm cool. Hey, I was smart and I was cute. (laughs) So there you go. I, I had the best of both worlds. I'd like to introduce you to another astronaut who has broken boundaries, Dr. Leroy Chow. Dr. Chow is the first Asian American commander of the International Space Station. How you doing, Dr. Chow? I am doing great. Though Dr. Chow was born in Milwaukee, his parents were originally from China and had immigrated to the U.S. through Taiwan. I grew up in the the 1960s, and so the world was very different back then, especially, you know, in suburban America. And, uh, you know, I was pretty much the only kid in my school that looked different. I was also the the kid of the smallest stature. (laughs) Growing up, he was always taking things apart and fixing them. And so pursuing an educational path in engineering was a natural fit. Mm -hmm. But uh, I told some people that I wanted to be an astronaut and they laughed at me. They teased Mm. me relentlessly. And and it would have been easy for me to just be embarrassed and say, yeah, you're right. I'm just kidding. Or I'm not smart enough or I could never make it. And I wouldn't have even tried. Mm -hmm. But I knew I had the smarts and the uh, credentials to to be an astronaut. So I was going to give it a shot. Mm -hmm. For myself, being a black woman, I think that Oftentimes, as a child, your imagination is a bit limited for the things that you've seen around you. So being a first-generation American, a parent of a family that immigrated to the United States, was there a part of you that felt very much like I should do something that is here, more tangible, more on the ground? This feels too far-fetched. I knew I wanted to be an astronaut, and I also knew that in order to do that, I couldn't just sit and work hard and wait to see if it fell in my lap. Mm. Uh, Asians are oftentimes more the unsung heroes, you know, in the back rooms 
uh, working mm-hmm. hard, making sure that uh, everything's going to work well, or helping the team to do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. The Chinese culture, Asian cultures, generally speaking, we're taught not to toot our own horns. That that you know the worst thing you can be is is braggadocious or you know full of yourself. And you know the idea is well, you work hard, and you get recognized, and you get rewarded. Well, that doesn't always happen in in Western society. Mm-hmm. But you know, at the same time, I would make myself be heard or be known, and not be shy about. At least letting people know about some of my accomplishments as I progress through my school years and my career. So I know that culturally it's it's a faux pas to brag on yourself, but you got to hand it to yourself, Dr. Chow. I mean, you're a bit <laughs> of a, a spacewalk expert, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, I, it, it had become, yes, spacewalking and uh, EVA construction mm-hmm. had become my specialty within NASA. So uh, on my second mission on Space Shuttle Endeavor on STS-72, I uh, that was the first chance I had to put on that big white spacesuit and and go out and lead my first two spacewalks. We were testing tools and construction techniques that we would later use to to build the International Space Station. So, talk to me about that experience of the the spacewalk because I'm I'm reading that you did a total of almost three days worth of spacewalks. Is that correct? Thirty six hours. Thirty six hours. Yes. So uh, six spacewalks, four in American suits, two in two in Russian suits. Spacewalk. Uh, even on my very last one, it's kind of a surreal experience. Uh, you're outside in basically a personal spacecraft. You know, you've got everything to keep you alive there: pressure, oxygen, thermal mm-hmm. control. Uh, even drinking water and, and a diaper in case you need it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Dr. Chow, let's talk about your firsts. Did you feel a sense of pressure, of there being eyes on you? Did you feel like um, that you had a, a big responsibility or were you just truly focused on the task at hand? I was mostly focused on the mission, but I was very well aware uh, in the background that I was you know, representing Chinese and Chinese-Americans around the world. And, you know, I felt that responsibility, certainly, especially as an example for young people. And so I took that seriously and, uh, you know, tried to conduct myself in a, in a good manner all the time and uh, would go out and do public appearances and uh, not only to Asian American groups, but also, you know, to all, all young people. And uh, I was very happy when I was doing international missions because we could also spread that good cheer internationally with different countries. Dr. Leroy Chow, Joan Higginbotham, and Wally Funk have all helped to diversify America's space program, even if it's taken the better part of a century. I spoke to another former astronaut, Nicole Stott, to discuss how far we've come and what NASA looks like today. How you doing, Nicole? I'm doing well. Nicole Stott first flew to space in 2009 and has since become only the 10th woman to perform a spacewalk. She's also the first person to paint with watercolors and microgravity. I am a retired NASA astronaut. Mm -hmm. I've been retired for about, oh gosh, it's five years now, which doesn't seem like it could possibly be that long. Kind of doing the artist thing, uh, author, and uh, I guess most importantly, mom would be Mm -hmm. would be the one. Yeah, I have to be honest. Before starting our show, I had truly no curiosity about space whatsoever, and it felt very elite to me. It felt like it was something that was separate and apart, and it was meant for incredibly intelligent people. (laughs) Um, It was only set for wealthy people. It was mostly for white men. Why do you think that NASA is, is having a difficult time translating the importance to folks here on Earth? We've all, like, tried to figure out how do we communicate better, and I can speak primarily to NASA, 
that just the diversity of every flavor of human being you Mm -hmm. can imagine is involved somehow. And when I contrast, you know, the way things were for Apollo, where if you looked, Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of diversity going on, you just didn't see it or wasn't appreciated in the way it should have been. And we've seen Mm -hmm. stories about that now. But the incredible work that was being done by all different kinds of people, and yet the face of it was, you know, mission and control in Houston, all white men. Mm-hmm. Launch control in Florida, all white men except for one woman sitting in the middle of the control center. Mm-hmm. And yet now, when you go to either of those control centers, first of all, they are run by really incredible women. Mm-hmm. And then when you look out into this mass of you know, humans on their consoles doing the work, it's just like this mix of humanity. Mm-hmm. We see a lot in our show that the, the women in our story, mind you, the story takes place um, decades ago, but the women find different ways of navigating how to be assertive, how to have their voices heard. Um, has that been a struggle for you at any point, or do you feel like the environment has been really welcoming? You know, I I feel very fortunate because I know it's not true for everyone. I absolutely Mm. know it's not true Mm. for everyone. I would say largely I've had a very positive experience. I think the only place I felt that at all was with the spacewalk training. Mm. That training, I would say, was probably the only place where I felt like, wow, there is a bit of a disadvantage being a smaller woman, getting into these suits where they don't provide us with the small suit. It's just the medium, large, and extra large. And so you're having to figure out ways to adapt to that Mm -hmm. by coming up with these solutions for how you figure out how not to float around in the suit when you're in the pool, you know, falling into the back of it, your hands coming out of the gloves. But like really looking at, okay, this is going to be a struggle. This is going to be the most physically challenging thing I have to do as part of astronaut training is doing these six and a half hour runs in these suits in the pool. Mm -hmm. However... I'm getting something out of it too. And if I can do this without hurting myself, the it was fun to find out. Yeah, the pleasure was the pain. <laughs> I never thought about the fact that the suits come in large, larger and gigantic, you know, and that it would be so big that you're like a little goldfish flapping around inside this suit. Somebody ought to do something. I mean, why don't well, they make these you smaller? Know, And they are. For the new suits that are coming along, they're building them in a way where the sizing will just be something that you can do as part of the suit. Yeah. I I don't want to diss the spacesuit makers either because Mm -hmm. they do make a small version of the suit. Hmm. Um, They just weren't provided. Talk to me about the experience of your first spacewalk. Because you were only the 10th woman ever to do a spacewalk. So talk to me about that moment of opening the hatch. Wow, that's, you know, I think everything about spaceflight, you could use the word surreal, mm-hmm. <laughs> just in general about the whole experience, right? But I, I would have to say that the the spacewalk was the surrealist of the surreal. Mm-hmm. And I just remember coming out of the airlock, and of course you're really diligent about having your tethers on and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm keeping track of where your crewmate, your buddy is out there and the work that's going on. But I don't think there's anything, anything that can prepare you for your feet coming out Mm -hmm. and your head finally popping out and looking down and seeing your feet (laughs) 
gosh, my stomach just dropped. (laughs) Like with this earth as the backdrop, 250 miles below. It was just, and just this horizon (laughs) to horizon glowing view of, again, oh my gosh, we live on a planet. Yeah. Talk to me about the women who came before you and who sort of paved the way for you to have the privilege now of doing what you do and being able to fly and to do the spacewalks and things like that. Yeah, you know, there's a word to me that goes along with the opportunity to have done these things, and it's gratitude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and mm-hmm. uh, on every level. Uh, I think about Joanne Morgan in that Launch Control Center being the only woman during Apollo and having just the strength and the intelligence to be there. When I got a job at NASA, she was one of our directors um, in the shuttle program, and to be able to learn about what she had gone through and realize that I'm not having to experience that same thing because of how strong she was when she went through it all. Mm -hmm. And to learn more and more about the women that were in the back rooms, really making it happen, Mm -hmm. quite honestly. Mm -hmm. And to know that, I I mean, I owe it to them to do my best too, you know, in all of what I do and what I'm excited about. And that hopefully some young girl sees me, sees you in this Mm -hmm. role on TV, sees my colleagues as just an example of what really is possible. If that can, you know, raise the self-confidence, the self-awareness mm-hmm. even, and and young women and young men to believe in themselves to do something or try for something they might not have otherwise, then yeah, I'm here for it. I'm grateful that in the world of For All Mankind, it's not out of the ordinary for there to be an astronaut who is not only a woman, but a black woman. And I hope that world expands the minds and the scope of what any young person believes they can be when they grow up. Incremental steps taken by NASA since its foundation and hard-earned victories by women, people of color, and others have inched the U.S. towards a more equitable program. Today, NASA's latest class of astronauts has 12 members and includes five people of color, five women, and the first Iranian-American astronaut. But there's still more to be done. With the right outreach, recruiting, and opportunities, I'm hopeful that one day the people floating up in space will more closely resemble the folks down on Earth. I want to thank my guests, former astronauts Joan Higginbotham, Dr. Leroy Chow, and Nicole Stott, as well as Wally Funk. Join us next time for the third and final bonus roundtable episode, where we will be digging into the last three episodes of For All Mankind Season 2, with my castmates Sarah Jones, Chantel Van Santen, and the one and only Ron Moore. This is Chris Marshall, Safe and Sound Earthside. Thanks for listening to the For All Mankind podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed. And watch For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by At Will Media. Executive produced by Will Malnati. Produced by Chris Marshall, Ashley Taylor, Patrick Farrell, Drew Beebe, and associate producer Dominique Ibeque. Sound editing by the At Will Media team. Sound designed and mixed 
by 1,000 birds. 